Welcome back, everyone, to Try It, You'll Like It, the podcast where we take a theme every two weeks and we look at a book and a movie around that theme. I'm Joseph Finn, and with me tonight are my co-host, Amy Watts. Hello. And Randy. Hi, everyone. Tonight's going to be uh, maybe a bit of a shorter one, bit of a shorter one because uh, we've got Randy uh, written for the Red Sox tonight, and hopefully we can give him a little more time to watch them kick the living hell out of the National League. Yes, if there are any uh, sudden yelps from my end of the conversation, it would probably involve that. Or the dog. Yes, and there will probably be an appearance from the dog when Jamie gets home. Nice. <laughs> he should be home in about half an hour or so, and she'll freak out. Well, good luck to your Red Sox, because, of course, you know, like all... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wait, hold on. Randy, can I, in my head, think that your dog's last name is Carmichael, so that when she arrives in half an hour, I can think, welcome home, Roxy Carmichael? <laughs> Actually, Roxy is home with me. We're just waiting for Jamie to get home. But Don't you can... spoil the joke! <laughs> <laughs> can we think of your house as the Five and Dime, so we can think, welcome back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean? How did sausage come into this? <laughs> no comment. Uh, that's an excellent segue into our book. <laughs> yes, except I hadn't gotten to that part yet. I'll take care of the segues. Thank you very much, young lady. Young? <sighs> hey! Hey, now. I heard that, Randy. I'm younger than you. This is true. All right. I'm younger than both of you. <laughs> Suck it, old timers! Oh, is this going to be a snippy week for all of us? Oh, I think so. We have a, <laughs> wait till we get to the movie, folks. <laughs> this week's theme was Greek mythology. We also we chose a book and a movie. I had the book this time around. Amy had the movie. We're going to start with the book this time around, and the book we cho we chose to read, or I chose it really. It is an Arrow's Flight by Mark Merlis. Published in 1998, and this is a, let's call it a late 70s version of the story of Pyrrhus, whose father Achilles is off fighting the war in Troy, except it's set in a Greece that's much more modern than that. Basically... I thought it was more in the 80s. I think it's the late 70s myself. I was mm. thinking definitely 80s because of the AIDS connotations. Yes, but I think it's just before the AIDS starts hitting, so I was thinking late 70s. Well, but it's supposed to be a sequel or a, a semi some people consider it a sequel to a book by a different author and that book came out in 1979 and was specifically about the 70s so i think this is like 81 82 okay it's never but said that's just me it's never said specifically in the book so no. we can uh, it, it's ambiguous also, i don't know why i just had a vibe of like based on some of the cultural references of early 80s certainly yeah I mean, it is certainly basically... Disco is fading, but New Wave hasn't... And New Wave is in, but hair bands haven't happened yet. Yes. And it is set in basically an alternate history Greece. So it could be whatever year you wanted to around then. Because basically you have Pyrrhus working as, for lack of a better term, a go-go dancer, I think we can just call him. Dancing bars. That's the right term, yeah. go-go dancer. Dancing on top of bars, getting tips from old men. Uh, I believe the term Queens is tossed around. Um, and it's basically him and how he is about to be dragged into his destiny. And the former compatriots of his of his dead father, Achilles, he's going to be dragged over to Troy to finally finish up the war because the Greeks have been there for 10 years and are ready to uh, wrap things up. 
Except, of course, he's the only one who can do it because he is the son of destiny, but boy, does he not want to be part of that destiny. So, let's start off with the obvious question. Uh, what do you think, Amy? I didn't finish. You didn't finish? Well, it is a rather long book. I didn't finish for the same reason I didn't finish last time, which is that I got so tired, and this is entirely my shortcoming and not the novel's. I know next to nothing about Greek mythology. And so, you know, instead of just like taking a character, you know, and like, okay, this is Apollo and here he is in modern day Berlin, right? And just appropriating a character. It appropriated a lot of characters, a lot of minor characters, and a lot of the history out of Greek mythology, n none of which I knew. And I spent a lot of time flipping back and forth between the book I'm trying to read and a book that's going to tell me, you know, help me out with, okay, you know, who's this character? And so how is Merlis riffing on the original with this character? I don't know how he's riffing unless I know the original. And so it started to feel more like homework than reading um, which is unfortunate because, so I think I might seek something else by the same author because I love his writing style and I love his kind of wry sense of humor. Um, but uh, the, the, the Greek mythology, which, you know, you picked that because you picked this because of that theme was a deterrent for me. Oh, that's totally fair. I mean, it's basically riffing off of the Iliad and if you have, if you've never read the Iliad or if you nope. If you don't know, you know, some of the old Greek legends, a lot of this is going to be pretty damn foreign. Yeah. So basically, you basically you just want to blame Randy because he chose the theme. Yes. Or blame Joseph because he chose the book. <laughs> or blame well, Glenn, pardon me, not, not him, uh, blame Trey Graham because he well, advocated the book on Pop Culture Happy Hour. And then I read it, so you picked it, so, yeah. Let's just mutually assign blame all around. But th that being said, like I said, the, the blame is on me. I mean, like, the, the, the shortcoming in terms of me relating to this book is the shortcoming of Amy, not the book. Certainly, and uh, I get the feeling that you will eventually finish it. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe if somebody explains to me using small words and big pictures the myth so that I can just enjoy descriptions of seersucker suits and old queens. Sure. Well, the basics of it is that uh, Helen uh, gets kidnapped by uh, Menelaus, probably by Paris, excuse me, misremembering my, my Greek mythology here. Helen gets kidnapped by uh, Paris, taken off to Troy. All the Greeks uh, have basically done a mutual defense pact uh, to keep them all killing, from each, killing each other over Helen before her marriage. Uh, so they're obligated to go along and retrieve her from Troy. Uh, that takes them 10 years because they're basically besieging the camp. Nobody can uh, figure out who's supposed to be in command or nobody can figure out who wants to be in command. You have people hiding in tents. Uh, you have people sulking. You've got gods showing up and befuddling things. That's basically the very rough sketch of what happens in the Iliad. Very rough. Why do we care so much about Helen? Because she's the most beautiful woman in the world. The face that launched a thousand ships. Eh, screw her. Pretty All, she much. Is a lot of guys pretty... <laughs> All she is is a pretty face. 
so basically, we have uh, Pyrus, who's uh, being recruited by all Pyrus of these. Pyrus or Pyrus? Pyrus. Let's go with Pyrus. <laughs> well, because I've always heard Pyrrhic victory, but I didn't know if it was one of those words that changed. In the ebook, uh, there's actually a character pronunciation guide right at the beginning of the book, oh, which nice. I found very helpful in a couple of oh, cases. I had the I had that <laughs> in terms of like a cast of players. Um, hang on, let me get to it. I mean, even with like a cast, you know, the the, the list of pl- the players. The players, yeah. I still was losing it. Your copy is a list they of all players. Sound, the the names are so foreign to me, being Greek, that they all sound alike. And I'm like, okay, wait, phylectetes? Wait, no, phylectetes? No, wait, I don't know how to say that word. And ugh. so phylectetes uh, in Greek mythology is the one who, who's in the Iliad. Uh, on their way to Troy, he is bitten by a snake, and he is left behind on the island of Lemnos. And it's eventually recalled by the Greeks because uh, he is one of the people who can help them uh, end the war. And in the not in this novel, I think it's a very deliberate use of him as the one who they have to get a bow, basically a magical bow, to finish the war with. Because instead of a snake bite. I think it's a pretty obvious age metaphor here. I think that's definitely the intention, yeah. So, Randy, uh, since Amy uh, didn't finish, uh, what was your take on the book? (laughs) I really liked the first section of the book. So the book is divided into three main sections plus an epilogue. Um, And in the first section of the book, uh, we spend time with, with Pyrrhus in the city and with with him and his roommate Lucon and kind of their shenanigans if you will in the city i thought that that was my favorite section of the book um i think that was when i read this book the first time i think it was at the end of that section that i just couldn't bring it was the i read all of that section and couldn't get into the second section yeah, so so in the the context of the bigger story that that comes from uh, the well, not not necessarily the Iliad itself, but other Greek myths that kind of involve the Iliad, um, Pyrrhus is has taken on a sort of secret identity in the city because he's actually Achilles' son, um, and Achilles is of course known as being this this great warrior, and he his birth or. Pyrrhus's birth name, uh, uh, Neoptolemus. Neoptolemus, thank you. (laughs) Um, So Pyrrhus is his sort of new identity, and it it basically translates uh, to his being a redhead. And so he becomes this much sought-after hustler, a gay hustler in the city. And it's just – it's fascinating just reading the – uh, not the details of it, but just how how invested uh, Merlis is in telling the story and how sort of in-depth he goes into um, how the the scene actually worked. I, I just thought it was it was fascinating. Um, sp- speaking as a gay man who was never a hustler, um, but who kind of vaguely knows of people who were peripherally involved in that scene around the time of the birth of the internet and because of course you know okay what do you mean by hustler i mean do you mean hustler in the sense of you know takes people for money uh sleeps with people for money 
Okay. Well, because, I mean, like, to me, a hustler, like, I think of the pool movie, the billiards pool movie. That's And true. so, well, I mean, like, a hustler doesn't necessarily have to involve sex, doesn't have to involve sex, and it's not a direct payment for sex. Like, to me, a hustler would mean somebody that, uh, like, you sleep with him, and he gets you to buy him a trip to wherever, and he gets you to buy, you know, and then suddenly yeah. you realize, wait a minute, I've spent a lot of money on this guy. I'll refer to him as a cowboy instead of a hustler. I think that's... Well, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm asking, is that a diff- does that term, does the word hustler have a different meaning that I'm just not aware of within the gay community and, the, and gay history? Uh... Know your gay history, Randy Perry. Is it a nicer no. way of saying uh, rent boy? Rent boy, yeah. <laughs> that also works, yeah. So he's essentially a prostitute. Yeah. Okay. And because the book gets into the details of why Pierce himself would be attractive to a lot of people because as the son of Achilles, Achilles himself was uh, half God. And so Pyrrhus is basically a quarter God, which creates some different characteristics that could be of interest to gay men. Well, if, it's a good thing he's only quarter, apparently. <laughs> I mean, right off the bat, Merlis wants you to know that gods had teeny tiny itty bitty weenies. Yep. Itty bitty teeny weeny weenies. Which I mean also goes back to what we know from like ancient Greek art as well, in terms of just how the male body was usually presented. As growers, not showers. <laughs> if they were lucky, they were growers. Yes. <laughs> Now, the other interesting side of uh, Pyrrhus also being called Neoptolemus is that that name, Pyrrhus, actually comes from Achilles from the time that he spent disguised as a woman. Yes. Which is kind of interesting considering how much of the Achilles man-man-general thing you get from all of his uh, compatriots in this novel. Uh, this, is all, this, is all, this is all part of... Uh, um, uh, Amy, that Achilles had a prophecy that he would uh, inv- get involved in a great war and that uh, he would die, and his mother uh, saw to it that uh, that one of the ways she tried to protect him, that she hid him in a royal court dressed as a woman. Yes, yes, I read that part of the book, and, and that's basically where um, Merlis turns that on its ear and is like, he couldn't even pass for the butchest of leb- lesbians, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? yes. Okay, so you got to that part. Good. Yes. Okay. I said I didn't finish, not that I didn't read it. Uh. <laughs> and 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 on that point of starting but not finishing, I have a question um, from early in the book. Um, Merlis uses an interesting uh, construction. Um, after we first, you know, we first meet Pyrrhus and he's dancing. And then the night ends, and then it's like he decides, oh, wait, I've dropped you into this story, but now I need to take you back to the beginning. And so he says, too far along, singer. And that happens several other times. Like, I noticed that that singer. So am I supposed to think, like, Greek chorus with that? Is that what's happening there? Okay. Yeah, my take on it, um, if you look back at the Iliad and the Odyssey, I've read the Iliad, but not the Odyssey, um, the... The author or the the narrator in the Iliad, at least, asks uh, the muses to sing through him, like to to, to actually have the muses or to sing the story that he's 
now telling. So I think that was just a reference to that whole tradition. Yes. It's basically, it's uh, being a bard and asking the gods to either inspire you or speak through you. So no, he's not, he's not talking to a completely separate character. No, I didn't think he was talking to a completely separate character. I just thought, okay, that must be, that's a, that's a device that I'm trying to figure out. Sure. And honestly, Randy, I prefer the Odyssey. I think it's a, I think it's a lot more fun than the Iliad. <laughs> the Iliad's a great catalog of ships. Yeah. Oh, the <laughs> ships. And weird sacrifices. Yeah. Then there's the Aeneid, the Aeneid, which is just dull justification for Roman expansionism. I have a question for Randy, perhaps. Um, maybe more than Joe, which is... Um, you know, there are a lot. I mean, okay, so this is written in 1998 by presum. I'm assuming Mark Merlis himself is gay, and is writing about a time you know in the late 70s, early 80s. And there's a lot of terms being, a lot of words being thrown around that we wouldn't use now, um, like and, and not and not by other characters but by the omniscient narrator um in terms of like uh let's see it says uh what is it hold on it's talking about pyrrhus as a young child and it says um what is it uh i mean well it's like here i mean we see queers we i saw i counted a sissy i counted a faggot and i'm just like you know is it are those terms that I flinch at now, but I wouldn't flinch at if I were a gay man or I wouldn't flinch at if I were a gay man in 1998, or I wouldn't flinch at if I were, you know, I'd be using them ironically as a gay man in the early eighties. I mean, I just wasn't sure what was going on with his choice of language. A lot of times as the narrator, was it as the narrator or was it as the narrator assuming someone else's perspective. Cause I thought well, that like, here's the... an example. For example, if Pyrrhus wasn't born a sissy, he certainly was one by the time his father first playfully wrestled with him when he was two or three. I mean, and that's pretty direct. I mean, you know, if Pyrrhus wasn't a sissy, wasn't born a sissy, I mean, you know, you could make the argument that he's saying it in the sense that that's how Achilles would portray him. But you know, it's not Achilles thought he was a sissy. It was if he wasn't born a sissy. And, and there's, I remember one of the, um, one of the character, when we first meet Pyrrhus in the bar, well, Pyrrhus describes one of the customers as a faggot. And I mean, like I said, it just, it took me by surprise, you know, because I think I just don't read those words that often anymore. Uh, I, yeah, it's, you ask an excellent question and it was something that I didn't really, I remember noticing while I was reading, but didn't really think about or process too much. Well, I mean, it's like, I know, you know, there's a certain, you know, some gay men will kind of almost teasingly or affectionately call other gay men things like, oh, you old queen. Yeah. Or, or things like that. And, you know, they're kind of, rec I mean, in the same way that they reclaimed queer, 
Yeah. You know, it's like we're going to reclaim this word and make it our word and not your word to insult us. But like, you know, sissy and faggot have not had <laughs> that reclamation. Yeah. So anyway, I just wondered if that stuck out to you or not. It didn't really. No, it probably should have, but it, it didn't. You're can't you're Canadian, you were just politely overlooking it. <laughs> oh, by the way, I saw a bumper sticker here the other day that had a uh maple leaf on it and a very jaunty eh. <laughs> you know like how some people have those stickers like like we'll say G B or you know, like the little oval country stickers. Sure. For the back of their cars. Mm -hmm. Um this was like that, but it had the maple leaf and an eh. I was best pleased. So when we're getting into the second half of this novel, after uh, Pyrrhus has been recruited by Achilles' former compatriots, mostly led by U U Ulysses, who comes across as one of the most jerkish versions of that character I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, Ulysses is the Roman term. It's Odysseus. Yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> So now we're on a uh, voyage from whatever version of Greece you want to call this over to Troy. So this is a longer portion of the book than I expected the first time I read it, because it's basically a sea voyage almost in terms of using 20th century technology, but taking the time of a 1000 BCE voyage, you know, maybe a week or so. And for me, that part of the book really slows down. What about you, Randy? Yeah, it there was there were definitely parts in the second section of the book where I found myself skimming. Mm -hmm. Not not skimming to the extent that I did when I read Lord of the Rings and anytime someone sang a song of the history of his people, I basically flipped for 10 pages. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's kind of like with George R. R. Martin, you're like, "Oh, feast." Okay. <laughs> pages later okay i'm done reading the menu All right. oh the beef and the wine and the story of our people okay okay wait i know this is totally off topic but i have to I, this is so bizarre i must share it okay when i was in middle school one of the songs we sang all the time in our music class was about england and roast beef and I'm not much of a singer, so you must forgive the quality of this. But we sang this song so often that, so, like, what are we now, like, 25 years later, I can still remember the chorus. Oh, the roast beef of old England, and oh, for old England's roast beef, la, 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 la. I mean, why were middle school children singing about roast beef? Okay, all right, I just had to figure, okay, continue. <laughs> And so while he's on the sheep, uh, on the sheep, <laughs> good God, sheep? it's not that kind of a novel. He starts sleeping with a fellow, with a sailor, uh, uh, Randy, you've got the pronunciation guy, what, Carithus? Uh, hold on. Uh, Carithus, yes. Oh, ready. Uh, who is closeted, and I don't know, I did is it just companionship that he's sleeping with this guy? Because it felt like it was supposed to mean more in the novel, and I'm not sure it really did. Well, I also wonder if this was this section of the book was sort of about some of the internal conflicts that gays in the military feel. 
Certainly. Like, and this is in 1988, and, so it's uh, right in the throes of uh, the... Don't the, Ask, Don't Tell. Was it four years into Don't Ask, Don't Tell at that point, I think? I think that was passed yeah, in 94 in the States. I mean, Clinton was president when it passed. Yeah. Post-92. So, so call it about four or five years at that point. Yeah, so, I mean, there was some, some nice stuff there just about kind of the suppressing of feelings and the sneaking around and stuff like that and the fact that you know everybody knew but no one was talking very don't ask don't tell almost literally um but it just story-wise just really dragged Mm -hmm. and it it seemed to just drag for like 100 pages until they say oh right we have to go to lemnos to get uh philoctetes in the boat right and (laughs) <laughs> then go from there. And that's where it starts. Did you say Philotitties? <laughs> <laughs> the pronunciation guide in my ebook pronounces it Philoctetes. <laughs> Although I, I would have been probably saying Philoctetes. I would go with Philoctetes myself as well. I like Philomtitties. <laughs> uh, Wiki's Greek okay, pronunciation. I'll, I'll be quiet in the peanut gallery again. Sorry. Wiki's Greek pronunciation <laughs> goes with uh, stress the third syllable, syllable so Philoctetes. Philoctetes? Oh, pull off teddies. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> and that's where the book. Next time we're reading a book about people named Jim and Bob and Mary. Oh, Bob. Bobbing for apples. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Well, I think we could just call him Phil. That works. <laughs> he is filling things in this novel. Uh, that was beneath even me, Joe. <laughs> so was the guy beneath him. Ah! Oh, I apologize to the audience at this point. Anyway. You should apologize to everybody. Pretty much. Anyway, we're at Lemnos, and that's when the, the novel starts to pick up again, I think, because now we're back to Philoctetes and, and Pyrrhus and people snarking at each other, basically. Because Philoctetes doesn't want anything to do with anybody. He's been abandoned. He's got the bow, but... He's not in a good mood with the uh, Greek Navy that left him there. And so then it kind of becomes this romantic quadrangle, basically, um, which I thought parts of that kind of dragged and could have been condensed from what felt like 150 pages down to maybe 50. Um, but before I get into that, I the ending really – I was not expecting – the way it happened, I wasn't expecting, so it kind of surprised me. And then I wanted to kind of reconsider how we got to that ending. Um, so, uh, uh, Pyrrhus uh, is is tasked with getting the the prophetic bow from Philoctetes, and does this by sort of faking falling in love with him, although sort of not faking, and. Meanwhile, Paris from Troy also shows up looking for the bow because in, in the greater context, it's, it's the uh, – I think it's, it's the, the Trojan oracle that kind of indicates that the bow is an important piece for the, uh, for the resolution of the war. And so then Paris, who is straight and who is um, – quite the ladies man uh sort of pretends to be gay and kind of puts the moves on philoctetes as well and it just it becomes this sort of kind of soap opera and making people jealous and stuff like that that 
didn't entirely work for me. What did you think of all that, Joe? I thought it kind of worked, but I wasn't that sold on the character of Paris in there. Yeah. I felt he felt like an unnecessary intrusion into the story. He it felt like they were trying to fill in a Trojan side to this that wasn't especially necessary. That I would have been more interested if the story had simply had simply been uh Pyrrhus and uh Philectetes and their back and forth. Especially since I don't think Philectetes was ever Maybe he's intentionally deluding himself, but I don't think he was ever uh, that taken in by Pyrrhus. I think he might have been slightly amused by the attempt to seduce him. Yeah, and so then this all kind of gets resolved rather abruptly at the end, but in in an interesting way, because I I was just reading, I wasn't really familiar with uh, the stuff that happens after the Iliad. And so now we're kind of in that territory where uh, the story of the Iliad has ended and the story of the Odyssey hasn't started yet. Um, so I think in the, in the classic myths, including a play by Sophocles, uh, Neoptolemus, Neoptolemus, why can't I never remember his name? Yeah. Neoptolemus um, basically goes to Troy and, or, gets the bow and goes to Troy and kind of becomes this violent warrior. And that ends the Trojan war. And, and in the, this book, none of that happens. Um, Philoctetes basically breaks the bow and that's kind of the end of it, which I thought was really interesting. I thought, I thought it was as well because it was kind of a, I mean, not to stretch a metaphor, but it was kind of a breaking from the path that everybody's been trying to force. That, exactly. This, this yeah. war. It's almost like the war just kind of peters out. Hey, everybody goes home. Yeah. And I mean, in the context of many classic Greek myths, of course, the oracles, the seers, the prophecies, those are all hugely important elements of the stories. And here it it is as well but not in the same way it's a it's a very contemporary take on that though it does use I, the uh, the classic greek method of the oracles in that the oracles give these grand pronouncements but don't get too bogged down in the details because they're not <laughs> because you are invariably going to get what the import of the prophecy is wrong the famous version being the uh the oracle at delphi who tells the Persian king, not Xerxes, his father, whose name I'm blanking at right now, starts with a C, um, that if you that uh, that if he invades Greece, a great a great empire will fall. And of course, you don't know which empire will fall if he if he invades. Turns out to be his own. Cyrus, maybe that could be it. The oracle isn't wrong about Pyrrhus ending the war. She's just everybody's interpreting that in their own way. The oracle who tells Paris isn't wrong that the uh, that the bow will be important in ending the war, but he doesn't know how it will end the war, or in whose favor. And it turns out that the oracles are all right, the war has ended, but it basically in nobody's favor. 
So then we get so then the war is basically over. That's basically the end of part two, and we get this interesting epilogue, which gets us into basically the plague years. Yeah. And which I thought about. Uh, well, that was said with a big sigh. <laughs> I mean, not that nobody ever goes raw raw plague, but. No, I'm curious, Randy, as to you, that sounded well, like a sigh. That's that. That sounded like a sigh of hmm. So I got a problem with this epilogue. I need to apologize for that sigh. It it was almost unintentional. Wait, was it related <laughs> to the Red Sox? No, actually, it wasn't. It was just related to me shifting in my seat. Ah. <laughs> it yeah. The the epilogue is set a few years after the events of the story where. We're back in the city at a hospital where Pyrrhus is visiting Philoctetes and actually sees his old roommate, friend, and uh, one-time lover. Not as in former lover, but like one time they hooked up, um, Lucan. And it's just sort of them re-meeting again after a few years. And I... I guess if there was any sort of aspect to the sigh, it was just me still kind of mulling over what I thought of it more than anything. Okay. okay. So what did you have to think about this, Joe? I liked this con- this conclusion because I, I liked seeing a few years later a more... It's not that Pyrrhus was immature in the rest of the novel, but I think he's a little more himself in this novel in in the epilogue he's not so much someone who's being acted acted upon by other people and i think he's a i think he's a kinder person for various reasons so i um hmm. but it almost feels a little too neat of an epilogue and i'm not sure why what no? Since I have a shitty memory, remind me. What movie did we watch recently that had like a wrap up that you got or an epilogue that you guys could have done without? Oh, um, Last Days of Summer. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm honestly looking through since this section of the book takes place in the plague years. I am looking through my list of books that I read around the same time uh, because I originally read this in July of 2011. And I am trying to remember what the name of the novel I read around that time was that was about uh, the community in Washington, D.C. as it's being decimated in the uh, early 80s. I think as opposed to this epilogue, it uh, really felt like it nailed it. But I don't see it in my list here offhand. I'd have to figure it out. So, we're done, we're done with the epilogue, and I guess at this point, I think most of us, Amy hasn't finished it, so she doesn't have a vote. Uh, me, I'm going to recommend this novel. I think it's, a, I think it's overall, it's a well-done novel. I have reservations about it. I think the uh, second part lags a little bit. But overall, I'm saying, yeah, go ahead and read it. It's a, it's a pretty darn good novel. I would definitely also give it a recommendation, especially if you're familiar with uh, some of the background in Greek mythology or can at least don't mind going to Wikipedia or somewhere else to kind of read up on that. I was familiar with some of it, some of it I wasn't. So it was definitely helpful to place this book in its bigger context into why uh, Merlis would want to tell this story in this way. Absolutely. 
And that's it for Arrow's Flight. So now we're going to move on to the movie section of the, of the podcast. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, wait. I'm Before sorry, Before we Amy. do that. Yes, Amy. Before we do that, I want to say that in looking at an Arrow's Flight and looking at it a little more, I, like I mentioned earlier that some people consider this to loosely be a sequel to another book um, called Dancer from the Dance. Um, and when I looked up that book, now I definitely want to read that book because it's, um, it's okay. Let me just read the plot summary basically through, um, from Wikipedia. The novel revolves around two main characters, Anthony Malone, a young man from the Midwest who leaves behind his straight life as a lawyer to immerse himself in the gay life of 1970s New York and Andrew Sutherland, variously described as a speed addict, a socialite and a drag queen. Their social life includes long nights of drinking, dancing, and drug use in New York's gay bars. Though they enjoy many physical pleasures, their lives lack any spiritual depth. The dance of the novel's title becomes a metaphor for their lives. The book switches perspective often. Sometimes characters are tracked closely using more traditional omniscient narrative techniques. Other times, especially later in the book, the lives of Malone and Sutherland are seen through the lens of bystanders in the New York gay scene. The book itself is literally written by the other dancers at the dance. Mm. And I think I would really enjoy that because I like things that are experimental with their narrative and, and structure and point of view. Um, but I don't have to know Greek mythology. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that one and I'll report back on it at some point. Please do. Uh, and I figured out which novel I was trying to remember that uh... – that deals with um, the early AIDS crisis of the in DC. It's called Grief by Andrew Holleran. Amy, mm-hmm. this is the same guy who wrote Dancer from the Dance. Hey! hey! It all comes around. And now we'll be moving on to the movie section of the podcast. We have some technical difficulties, so if you hear some weirdness going back into this, I apologize. Amy, why don't you tell us uh, what we watched? Okay. Um, more recently than others, some of us watched two <laughs> movies. Um, we watched a short film called God of Love, uh, d- written, directed, and starred in by Luke Matheny. And we also watched John Hughes' classic, mm-hmm. mm. uh, Weird Science. Um, I want to start us off with Weird Science. Um, and I have a question for you guys. Um, on the pile of shit scale, do you rate it a pile of shit, a steaming pile of shit, a steaming pile of shit with flies, or a steaming pile of shit with flies on the bottom of your shoe? I would like to... I would actually like to use a different uh, scale, if I might. Are you getting prissy on me? Yes. (laughs) I would like to borrow the Linda Holmes scale. If neither of you remember this scale, that is, how hot would it have to be for me to actually go see this movie in a theater? And what's the answer? Uh, I would say about 97. No, I mean, for me, it'd have to be like 110. Ooh. And that's, I mean, that's humid uh, Georgia 110. Yeah. Which I actually I've never it's never gotten to 110 since I've lived here. I think the highest it's gotten is like 103 or 105. Ah. But even just imagining it. <laughs> besides, I have air conditioning at home. That's a good point. Ah. Yeah. All right, Randy, uh, you want to use the pile of shit scale or? Uh... Yes, Randy. 
pile of shit, pile of shit. I would describe it as a steaming pile of dog shit rather than human shit. I did because... not specify <laughs> species. Because it was a completely terrible movie, but in a completely different way than I was expecting. Really? What way were you expecting it to be terrible? I figured, because I didn't really know much about it apart from the premise in which... So had you, you ever know, seen it? I'd never seen it, no. Oh, okay. okay. No. Um, in which the two teenagers create a woman. Like, that was all I knew about the premise, and I expected them to use her for various sexcapades, and that didn't happen, which surprised and partially delighted me for the way the 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 character or the plot unfolded. Um, having said that, it was still a completely terrible movie. Yeah, it is okay. a weird, weird misstep for John Hughes in the middle of some very good movies. Well, according to IMDb, he wrote it in two days. I'm like, Shows really? Coke. Perhaps, perhaps we should have rethought that. Give it the third day. <laughs> Who knows what you could have come up with with one more day. Um... <laughs> I will agree with you, Randy, that I did. I do actually like that. And and believe it or not, you know, I, I expected to go back in and see all sorts of like horrible, sexist, oh, my God, I can't believe that kind of things. But all in all, I mean, they treat Lisa, their creation, played by Kelly LeBrock, they treat her with respect. You know, um, she is almost like a uh, she um, apparently Kelly LeBrock described this character um, in an interview. She described Lisa as Mary Poppins with breasts. Has she seen Julie Andrews? <laughs> well, you know, I think you get what she Mary Pop. I mean, it's not like Mary Poppins was going around in, you know, cut off shirts and panties. She didn't need to. I, I've never seen Mary Poppins. Oh, for You've never seen Mary Poppins? God's sake. Um, what kind of movie is it? It's a great uh, movie. Awesome. <laughs> okay, what genre does it fall into? Fantasy? Musical. Apocalypse? Oh, come I, on. Have I seen most musicals? No. This should not be a surprise to you. Anyway. <sighs> Hey, by the way, none of my exchange students had ever seen The Sound of Music. We've got Pol we had Poland, Denmark, Italy, and Germany in the in Spain in the conversation, and none of them knew The Sound of Music. Well, of course they wouldn't. The German one hasn't seen Sound of Music. It's the movie that uh, well, it it has you know those Germans in it. Yeah, but it's still like you know a classic. Anyway, sidebar. Back to weird science. No, I, I have a um, sidebar here for, for for a moment. Sound of music that's coming up on NBC. Audrey McDonald has five minutes and Carrie Underwood has the rest of the, the, the thing. Ugh. You have no idea how excited I am for that. <sighs> I think it's going to be the worst fucking thing that ever aired on television, and I can't wait. Worse than Smash? The Smash Williams <laughs> story? <laughs> that never actually aired. <laughs> uh. All right. Side so, by side by um, over. So let's let's get back to the movie here, guys. All right. Um, the the and like one thing I did note was when they were um 
building Lisa, right? And, you know, they've, they've got all these different pictures and, like, they're feeding it, you know, she needs to have these lips and these eyes and these legs. Oh. Well, but wait, <laughs> you know, did you notice what two of the pictures were that they fed in? Yeah, they're Kelly LeBrock. No, they fed in a picture of Beethoven and a picture of Einstein. Well, yeah, that's for the brains part. Well, but, I mean, I did not remember or expect for this movie to care about the intellect of the woman they were creating. So that was a pleasant surprise. Fair enough. Realize that John Hughes did write it that way. Fair enough, but that scene hurts. It it hurts well, because the it's the other thing about that scene Ugh. is um if you've ever seen Gene Kilborn's documentary Killing Killing Them Softly, it's all about the portrayal of women in visual advertising. Um and one of the themes that she that she hits on over and over again is how often women are dismembered in ads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't see her whole face. You only see her lips. You don't see her let her whole and, and even needlessly. Right. Like, I mean, it's one sense if you're advertising pantyhose to only show a woman's legs. Right. Sure. But if, if you're advertising lipstick, why only or nail polish? Right. They only show you her hands on her legs. She doesn't get to have a face. And, you know, it was weird almost because they were taking these, they were dismembering in order to create. And I found that fascinating in a weird way. Yeah, that's why the, with its relation into the the whole Frankenstein story as well, um, where I had expected if there was going to be any sort of sexual thing not only would it involve kind of the dismemberment but also maybe like a sick necrophiliac kind of context (laughs) which would have been a completely different movie obviously yes by the way it incredibly bugs me that they're using colorized a colorized version of bride of frankenstein when they're watching this well that may have been what was available to them footage wise at that time nope bride of frankenstein was never released colorized oh really nope no, but I meant the footage that, you know, when when you have to secure the rights to use footage in a movie, Turner may have only allowed them to use, if it was Ted Turner who was the big colorizer, he may have only allowed them to use the footage if they presented it colorized. Yeah, that could be, yeah. I, I mean, I just never doubt the nefariousness of Ted Turner. True, except um, except that uh, Bride of Frankenstein is a universal film, and I'm, not, and I'm fairly okay. certain that uh, Turner never had his mitts on that one. Okay. Um, just to bring it back here to the theme of Greek mythology, because you mentioned Frankenstein. And so, I mean, I want to say that even though, you know, there's the obvious Frankenstein illusions with the, it's alive. Um, I actually picked this as an idea of, um, a retelling of the Pygmalion myth. Um, yeah, I remember that was on the Wikipedia page. Not Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. Um, because that's not a literal Pygmalion in some sense. Um, in the sense that, you know, Eliza Doolittle is already living. Um, and he's just bringing her to life in the sense of uh, recreating her in this image of a proper young woman. Whereas this is much more closer to the original where, um, you know, Pygmalion is a sculptor and falls in love with a statue he's carved. Um, what I really wanted to do was make you guys watch Mannequin, where Andrew McCarthy... 
falls in love with a mannequin he has created because that is straight up Pygmalion, but you, you both plotted revolt if I did that. So And now I'm wondering if we made a bad choice. <laughs> Clearly made the wrong choice. Don't don't mess with me. All right. <sighs> um, but I have such bad memories of Meshach Taylor in that movie. That's okay. Actually he's the best part of the movie. Anyway. Um That's okay. You'll so, all laugh when I tell you what I think the best part of this movie is. Well, so I don't really have a whole lot to say about uh, this movie in any kind of, you know, intellectual or thematic sense. But so I'm just going to point out some fun facts that I either noticed or looked up. Okay, Um, I don't know if you guys saw the recent graphic on Jezebel.com about the number one name for American states since 1960. Yes, both of them. They did a girl's map and they did a boy's map. Mm -hmm. Right, yes. I saw that after having seen this movie, and I noticed how predominant Lisa was for a big span of time. So just for grins and giggles, I went and looked up, and Lisa was the number one name for girls in the state of Illinois um, from 1961 to 1969. So in 1985, that would be 16 to 24-year-old women. So naming this character Lisa was pretty spot on. Yes. There you go. Um, also, at the begin near the beginning of the movie, um, oh, who's Elon Mitchell Smith? What's his character's name? Wyatt. Yes, Wyatt and um... Wyatt and the dweeb. Yeah. God, never have anyway. I disliked Anthony Michael Hall more. Um, Wyatt tries to bribe Chet with one hundred and seventy-five dollars. In today's money, that would be three hundred and eighty dollars and thirty-eight cents. <laughs> Um, and then here's a couple of quibbles. I mean, you know, there's a lot of quibbles with this movie in terms of it sucks. Um, but in, in terms of things that I think, you know, you could have, you could have fixed, um, you know, besides everything, I didn't buy Ian and Max as the quote unquote cool kids. That's the Robert Downey Jr. character and... I mean, I think we're supposed to think they're the cool kids, and yet that's not how cool kids looked in every other teen movie from 1985. Including uh, John Hughes movies. Including John Hughes movies. And so it's like, was that a, I mean, you know, from the way they acted to, I mean, they should have been jocks, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's true. They basically look like like, new wave guys. yeah, they look like new wave guys, and I'm like, I don't remember new wave guys ever being like the feared people in school. I mean, good lord, you can't wear ruffles and be feared unless you're, I don't know, the queen. <laughs> anyway, especially not going um, to Glenbard North or whichever school they went to. So Ian and Max were problematic characters from start to finish. Um, and then the other big thing I didn't buy was why the blues club, you know, these two dudes get dressed up, (sighs) they're going to go out with this hot girl and they go to a blues club. They don't hit a disco. They don't hit the local mall. They don't, they don't go anywhere where they would show her off to people their own age. Instead, they go into a club that 
they quickly decide is somewhat hostile to it. I mean, I did not buy that for one second. And the only reason I can figure out that they did it was because Anthony Michael Hall really wanted to use his old black man character. To be fair to the movie, uh, Lisa takes them there. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that then that's still a dumb choice on her part. I mean, because she usually does a pretty good job throughout the rest of the movie of getting that kind of thing right. Right. And, I mean, so I still think the motivation for that scene in that club was so that Anthony Michael... Because he he's done that character. He did that character on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. He's done it in other movies, you know, and I think he just really wanted to do his... You know, at that point, you know, he was able to convince... Um, John Hughes to let him do that scene so he could bust out that impression. Yeah. I mean, this movie is full of set pieces in search of a plot. The entire thing about uh, furniture and uh, the eventually nude girl going up the uh, fireplace. Mm -hmm. Scene in search of a plot. The mutants. Scene in search of a plot. I mean, everything... By the way, the fun part about the mutant bikers, that's just, this is a completely uh, nerd thing, is that uh, almost all of them are from the Mad Max movies. Hmm. Huh. So, Randy, since you've never seen it, I mean, I think, I think uh, Joe and I just had a little tiny bit of our adolescence ripped away from us. Um, <laughs> but how did you feel about this? Um, I... I mean, would it have even appealed to you when you were 15? Possibly. And in some ways, I am kind of surprised that I didn't see it, given that it was about, you know, dorky teenagers. But well, then again, I didn't They were really creating Lisa, not Liam. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Although at that point, I did not, you know, have that particular aspect of my personality figured out. Um, I, my, one of my, uh, missing links in my 80s movies is the cinema of John Hughes. I've only seen uh, The Breakfast Club and now this. I am so sorry. <laughs> well, you only, realistically, you only have uh, three more you need to worry about? Well, and my favorite John Hughes film is one he wrote but didn't direct. Um, which is some kind of wonderful. I think she. Uh, I think she misspelled Mr. Mom. No, I like some kind of wonderful better. <laughs> At this point, Randy, uh, stick with Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That's the ones that he wrote and directed. Well, but those are the teen movies. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is not a teen movie, and neither is Mr. Mom. If we're talking about John Hughes teen movies, you need to watch Sixteen Candles and. Pretty in Pink, and Some Kind of Wonderful. And I, I did see Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I keep forgetting that's a John Hughes movie, even though I shouldn't, because it so obviously is. Right. I, I have issues with uh, with Pretty in Pink. Well, there's everybody does. but um, and, and we're not getting into that, because you and I always have this fight, and I'm not prepared to have it tonight, because I'm in a good mood. <laughs> and we're running out of time. Um <laughs> So, Randy, what'd you think? Uh, I, it was not a good movie. <laughs> it was pretty awful from start to finish. I mean, like, I think about 30 minutes in was when I publicly apologized on Twitter <laughs> to Joe and you for making you watch it. I mean... 
It's Christ on a cracker. It was terrible. Oh, and there's and 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 what's sad is that there are a couple of glints of things in there that I'm like, okay, maybe the movie's going to be good again. First appearance of Robert Downey Jr. I'm like, okay, he's got energy on the screen. Maybe the movie's going to pick up, and I'm misremembering how much I hated his character. Nope. nope. But you can see why, even in his brief role here, why he's one of the very few actors out of this movie to have had a significant career. Oh yeah. I, I told the wife, I paused the movie about about halfway through, and I'm like, this movie's fucking terrible, but I would so watch if you gave me a time machine and, like, grab 18-year-old Robert Downey Jr., I would so make a young Tony Stark movie involving that guy. <laughs> well, um, on the thought of this, I, I, Ilan Mitchell-Smith apparently is a very nice man. He's now a college professor. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, and in fact, he really doesn't talk about his acting career much, um, but uh, he told he got interviewed for some fan magazine, and the story goes that um, it, he, he didn't even tell his wife, now wife, when they were dating, that he had once been an actor, you know, this teenage actor, until she happened to mention that The Chocolate War is one of her favorite movies, and he was a star in that. And I'm thinking... <laughs> She Googled you, dude. I mean, come on. I like The Chocolate War, but it's nobody's favorite movie. No. <laughs> anyway. Um, similar to I similar to that, uh, we can edit this part out. Michael Sheffling, the guy who plays Jake in 16 Candles. He's a, he's uh, a carpenter. Yeah, furniture maker these days. Which, oh my God, that just makes him sexier. I know, right? Yeah. <sighs> Randy, you have to watch it. Jake is so hot. Yeah, I, I, I have no argument with this. He's he's the epitome of 80s hair, but it doesn't come off as douchey. And it's actually a very nice little performance. He makes a sweater vest look hot. All right, I will say so, Bill Paxton is... A, I, I actually enjoy him in this movie. Well, Bill Paxton gets to come in and, you know, do this over-the-top, horrible over bro older brother. Yeah. And, I mean, that was probably what? two days of filming for Bill Paxton and, you know, he got to camp it up and ham it up. So yeah. And Good on you, Bill Paxton. <laughs> turned into what I'm pretty sure was the movie because it was a steaming pile of shit. Yep. <laughs> Hi guys. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to brighter things, or at least I think much, much brighter from, from the, uh, what is it? From the ridiculous to the sublime. Yes. Um, a short film. Written, directed, and starred in by Luke Matheny called God of Love. It did win the Academy Award for uh, Best Live Action Short and well-deserved. Every year I try to make a point of seeing the um, short film showcases. And when I saw this that year's crop, I was like, I was so in love with God of Love. But there were some other really good entries and I and, uh, that had kind of more of a profound or maybe kind of a uh, like maybe a sad ending or dealt with something tragic. And I'm thinking, there's no way this delightful, charming short is going to get it, even though I totally think it should. And then it did. Like, that was the Oscar I was happiest about that year, <laughs> which there probably aren't a lot, of other pe a lot of other people besides, like, me and him and his mom who were like, that was the highlight of the Oscars for us. <laughs> <laughs> so let's set it up. You have Luke, and he is a um, 
he little lounge singer, right, with his little jazz trio. And he's also an excellent dart thrower, um, which they have incorporated into the lounge act. And he's playing, he's got a couple, uh, I'm going to have to look at the IMDb entry to make sure I get all the names right. Um, but basically his drummer, female, and his bass player, male, are, are clearly besotted with one another. Um, except Luke is also in love with, he wants to get together with the drummer. Girl drummers, man, they're irresistible, right? <laughs> um, and at the bar, he gets a delivery from the Olympus Corporation or Olympus Foundation. And it's these darts with little uh, heart-shaped quil- quills. Is that what you call the back of a dart? Quivers. Fl- no. Fletches. What do you call the back of a dart? Fletches. I can't say that word. <laughs> say it again? Fletches. Like Fletch, like Chevy Chase Fletch? Yes. Okay. So little heart-shaped Fletches, and it quickly becomes apparent that, you know, that there, there's a note, right? Uh, anyway, if he strikes somebody with this, they're going to fall in love with the next person they see, and the effect lasts for six hours. So he tests it out right away on on the, this couple they walk up behind the, uh, up, up, walk up on behind the street. And you know, so they're besotted, and they kind of uh, Ray, which is Luke's character, and and Fozzie, his his bassist, uh, follow the couple and track their progress. And when the six hours is up, they're still in love. So this means Fozzie's going to use the dart now to win Kelly, the drummer's heart. You mean Ray instead of Fozzie? Sorry, Ray. <laughs> I want to call him Luke. And. <laughs> along the way he kind of learns about like where you can force love and where you can't and and that and at the end of the film he opens his door to find a delivery of arrows um and basically we now know he's the new cupid and he's got a voiceover that basically says if you think love is stupid that's because i'm in charge and you've already seen i'm an idiot right and I mean, there were so many reasons that I should not like this movie, right? I mean, it's got jazz. It's got Brooklyn. <laughs> it's got, you know, like, it's so hipster. It, it It's over itself. And I loved it anyway. <laughs> um, Hipsters have feelings, too. Well, it's just that it was so <laughs> charming and romantic and joyous. And... It had such a skewed, weird sense of humor. Um, because <laughs> the um, when they're sitting at the bar and and they realize that the darts do work, and Fozzie says, "This is madness," and Ray immediately replies, "This is destiny." <laughs> and I mean, it's like you know, and not a trace of irony in the exchange either, right? And then. Um, I want to talk about Ray's idea of the six most romantic hours imaginable. It involves, in no particular order, chicken pot pie, an Amish barn setting, and, you know, he says, you know, like witness. I mean, that's hilarious, right? And then, and there's a little exchange in there where Fozzie kind of, you hear a goat 
um, bleat off screen. And it's like, Fozzie says, was that a goat? And without even looking up, Ray says, yes. It's even funnier if you've seen Witness. <laughs> I haven't seen Witness. Um, there's an accordion. There's a nine-page Portuguese poem. I mean, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And, and then he ends up with a bunch of hangers-ons, right, and his groupies. And he's, and that's hilarious. Like, if you look around, like, there's the lady in the burka. There's the dude who's slightly confused. <laughs> there's a marathon runner. Like, she's got her marathon number on her, right? And they're playing Scrabble. And he's, and I mean, I just love all of this. It just cracks me up. And I love, the biggest thing I think that sells me on this is Luke Matheny, his performance and his face. When setting up this movie for you guys, I said, this guy has a face that I could just look at forever. And I mean, I think the best demonstration of that in the whole movie is in the scene where he's taken Kelly to the ballet and he looks over and he realizes that she started to tear up at the emotion of the ballet. And the camera just focuses in on his face as he tries to get his chin to wobble, <laughs> as he tries to get his tears to flow. And I mean, Matheny just has this wonderful, rubbery, expressive face covered by this crazy mound of hair and it's just I, I could watch that guy i mean he's fascinating okay that's enough of me talking about it what did you guys think loved it i loved yeah i loved randy? that it's wait joe i want to hear what randy thought okay. uh, i thought it was terrific yeah yeah i mean if my cold black heart can like something called god of love it must be good right there is not a bit of irony or sneering in this entire thing, and I love every second of that. I, I think that's what got me, too, was that it was not, there, there was no condescension or playing to the camera or wink, wink. I mean, it was just straight up fun. Randy, what did you, what, would you like to add anything? Yeah, it's... Um... Everything I thought was was very well observed. Like it was just like just the the different beauties, like the one with the the burka and the marathon runner, like you were talking about, Amy. It was just so, in a way, specific and just presented without too much of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink aspect to it, which was just yeah, wonderful. Um, I loved that it was shot in black and white. Um, Why did I you like often, that? I often think that. Uh, modern directors, when they use black and white, don't necessarily use it right. Because um, I'm I'm all about you know the like the German expressionism kind of black and white with lots of light and shadows and really interesting play between the light and shadows and stuff like that. And I thought uh, Matheny did a very good job here of not necessarily approaching it that way, but just using it for what it was. And it was in a way very romantic use of black and white, and it tied in with the uh the whole jazz trio aspect of it as well it just it felt classic and contemporary so i thought the black and white was very effective in in helping establish that and i've got a very ferocious puggle here right now so if you, if you hear any oh, hi, Rocky. <laughs> you hear any growling oh there we go go away <laughs> and um it's funny 
I thinking about short films in general, um, unrelated to short films, but uh, when Sarah Polly's first uh, movie away from her came out, um, there was a screening in Toronto, and I was living in Toronto at the time, where she uh, introduced the movie and had a Q&A afterwards, and the Q&A was hosted uh, by Michael Landacci, the author of The English Patient. And it was a fascinating Q&A just talking about the process of adapting. And before I get too far off track, she said that um, – of course, uh, Away From Her was based on a short story by Nobel laureate uh, Alice Munro. And she said that she liked adapting a short story to a film because you could really explore the emotion within the story and not get too sucked down by too much plot. Oh. Which I thought was just a really interesting um, take on it, whereas you, th- you often think of like, adaptations of novels making uh, into films. Um, Here she explored it differently in in adapting a short story to a film, which got me then thinking about, okay, well, what would I expect? If if I was adapting something into a short film, even less time to establish plot, I'd be much more interested in looking at just exploring an idea. And although there is definitely plot here, I think Matheny does a very good job of exploring the idea of what it would actually be like to have these arrows. And uh, yeah, I thought it was wonderful and and absolutely effective. And even though I haven't seen the other competition or the other movies it was up against, it was probably worthy of its Oscar. Um. I, I think you got at something there with the plot, which is that, I mean, it does have a plot. It does move forward. And it's <laughs> it's amazing to me how briskly, I mean, I've watched feature-length films where directors don't know how to handle the pacing of their plot. And this guy has figured it out for a 16-minute film. All right, so we're definitely recommending uh, God of Love. If you want to check it out, Joe discovered that it's on the DVD for what? Uh, 127 Hours, the James Franco uh, Caught in a Canyon movie. Which I would also really recommend. Oh, yes, yes. Incidentally, (laughs) it's a great film. Um, It's also available on iTunes. (coughs) But it's there. Um, And so it's not impossible to track down. Um, And it's... You know, 16 minutes, 18 minutes with the credits, extremely funny, extremely sweet, and and worth checking out. Yes. Another just general comment about short movies in general. Um, I I love that uh, theaters are now doing the – like the short film showcases um, of the Oscar-nominated movies um, for both live action and animated and documentary as well. I think they're all – generally screened each year and because with with digital projection and everything like that it's it's probably even easier to see short films now and i wish more theaters would do it because nothing in calgary screens those shorts well the other thing i wish is that there for a few years like for about two or three years the academy would release these short film showcases on dvd Mm mm-hmm yeah. And they've stopped doing that. And so that's a real shame for people who don't leave. I mean, I am very lucky that even though I live in a tiny college town, we have an art house theater that's been dedicated to bringing these in. 
um, every year. I mean, it's very popular for them, so it's a moneymaker, and that's why they bring it in. But they only bring it in for one week. And so if I'm gone that week, you know, too bad for me. But again, it's it's the perfect opportunity and perfect marketing and having all these Oscar-nominated movies to get people like us to – like if I want to be a completist of all the Oscar nominated movies, then I really should see all the shorts as well. Right. Or they could just and... sell them. Through, I mean, I know people have opinion about the iTunes music store, but just sell them through iTunes for like 99 cents each. Sell a package of well, them. And a lot of them have been doing that, particularly on the animated side. Um, I've seen a lot of the animated shorts end up on iTunes. Um, I wish more of them would end up on Amazon instant video because me and iTunes do not get along. Right. I mean, I still have uh, image. I, I still have uh, files of uh, the. I think it was like 2006. Uh, they they put out a package of the best live action short films. You could buy all five of them for like five bucks. And I, I was I, I'm glad I really did because it was a really strong year too. Okay, so are we ready to move on to our next theme? We're going to talk about what we're going to be doing for next time around, and I have chosen the theme of cloning. Clones, doppelgangers, whatever you want to, however you want to take it. And the movie chooser this time around is Randy. What you got for us? Now, under the assumption, and I think Amy was going to go this route, that she was taking a literal approach to the topic of cloning. Is that correct? I ended up going that route, yes. Okay. I chose to go in a more metaphorical way, thinking of the concept of doppelgangers or copies or doubles or parallels or something along those lines. Um, and mainly I, I tried to fit the theme because there's there are some movies that I want to pick and I don't know if we'll ever get the themes appropriate enough. So to avoid something like weird science, that's okay. So because I, I wanted to try to fit the theme to a movie I wanted to pick, I chose to go non-literal when it came to the topic of clones. And I also wasn't limiting this to a movie that I have seen that the two of you have not because that is, I think, quickly becoming a very unfortunately limiting uh, factor for us in, in picking uh, books and movies, but probably more so more troubling for movies than for books. Um, and if our respective movie lists are accurate, uh, Joe, you have seen this movie, but Amy, you have not. Oh dear. And okay. The movie we're going to be watching for the next episode is Darren Aronofsky's 2006 The Fountain. Oh, okay. I, I've seen I it once. I just recently saw Requiem for a Dream on my recommendation. You recommended it. So <laughs> bastard. You keep pushing me to the Aronofsky. <laughs> That's a, that, that that I love how that's number one on the list for everybody of films we love that we'll never watch again. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not quite sure why I bought a Blu-ray of Antichrist, speaking of that. <laughs> I need to get around to seeing that. I love Melancholia, and I feel like I need to uh, watch a really tougher version of, Von, of uh, Lars von Trier. Yeah, it's uh, un unforgettable um, in both a good and a bad way. Hey. Uh, but anyway, to the fountain, it's... We'll talk about it. it's it's making more in the next episode, but it took Aronofsky six years to actually complete it due to casting and budget and all sorts of issues. When it premiered in 
Venice in 2006. It was not well received. I saw a screening of it a few days later at the Toronto Film Festival where it was, well, Toronto audiences tend to be polite and they'll, there'll be a smattering of applause at almost anything. And there was a smattering of applause at this, but I thought it was fantastic. I still think it's underrated and I think its reputation is hopefully going to grow as the years go by. And I basically picked it because I wanted the chance to talk about it. So that's why we'll be watching the fountain. Does it have anything to do with the theme at all? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, I was like, we can't, it's not just, I like this movie theme. <laughs> oh no no, there's a there, there is a very literal connection. Okay. Um I I struggled with this one um because for the book at least because a lot of movies that have to do I mean a lot of books that have to do with cloning the the clone aspect is either a twist or a big reveal um you know, either somewhere during the book or at the end of the book. And so, therefore, if I pick it for this theme, then you already know what the twist is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's how, I mean, basically I used a, a, I used the database we have that helps identify fiction by theme. And um, I don't, they're not paying me, so I'm not going to say their name. Um, <laughs> and uh, typed in clone and came up with a bunch of things. And, you know, reading plot descriptions, that's what a lot of them were. I went through a long list of other clone books. I checked out a huge stack of them from the library and I skimmed or read the first paragraph or, you know, read a few sentences of some of them and was able to dismiss them pretty quickly. So the one I'm recommending is one that I'm not saying it's a great book, but what I am saying is that of all the books that I checked out of the library, it was the one that had me interested in its premise, had the most interesting premise to draw me to it, and then was the most engaging. I mean, I started reading it and I finished it the same night um, because I wanted to know ha- what was going to happen and how it was going to end and if there was going to be some sort of big reveal or big twist or, or something that I didn't expect to happen. Um the, title, the book I'm picking is The Originals by Cat Patrick, and that's C-A-T, Cat. Um, here's the premise. 17-year-olds Lizzie, Ella, and Betsy grew up as identical triplets until they discovered a shocking family secret. They're actually closer than sisters. They're clones. Hiding from a government agency that would expose them, the best family appears to consist of... Uh, that's their surname, the best... Uh, The best family appears to consist of a single mother with one daughter named Elizabeth. Lizzie, Ella, and Betsy take turns going to school, attending social engagements, and a group mindset has always been a de facto part of life. And the Amazon description goes on to tell you a plot point, um, which I'm not sure I want to reveal to you. Um, But... You know, it's suffice to say that this is sort of um, science fiction mixed with that idea that any teenager would have of, you know, becoming your own person and defining who you are. And their situation, their situation is just complicated by the fact of cloning. Very nice. That looks like a good choice, actually. I, well, like I said, I don't. Th- I'm, I'm not saying it's the best book you'll ever read, um, but I think it will. 
hopefully at least be entertaining. Absolutely. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't pick the uh, Daniel Steele book. <laughs> well, I, I actually haven't started reading it yet um, out of all the stack. So if, in the case you're wondering, that's The Clone and I. And clone is spelled with a K. Oh, God, no. Are there k- 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 keystone k- 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 cops as well? No, but it's a play on the king and I, duh. <laughs> Does the KKK well, come and protest? I've actually, never read, I've actually never read a Daniel Steele book. This will be my first. Well, they all so. have hidden identities. All right. Oh, lordy. <clears throat> all so, right, so... Join, join us next time. We will be reading the originals by Cat Patrick, and we will be watching The Fountain, which is available for streaming on Amazon and Xfinity Stream Picks. You can also get it by DVD through pretty much everything else. You can get it uh, by rental on uh, digital rental on Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube. And you can also buy it on your various Xbox and, and whatnot. Sadly, the only place it's not streaming or available for digital rental is Netflix. But, oh well. Get it from your library then. So, we will be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us at tryandlikeit.blogspot.com. You can, you can find us on iTunes. Please review and rate us. That helps us in some weird way that I have no idea about. You can reach us on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-N-N. That's F as in Frank, two N's, not Finn like a fish. You can find Randy at, on Twitter at... Randois, R-A-N-D-O-I-S. You can find Amy on Twitter at... Uh, sorry been like a fish just killed me it killed me dad you know how many times people misspell Finn with one N or fine or Flynn I don't know (laughs) anyway you can find her at Amy Watts that's A-M-Y-W-A-T-T-S on Twitter you can also not like the question what what? Uh, you can also find her writings on uh, D- D- Dancing with the Stars and The Vampire Diaries at the Baltimore Sun website. We'll have a link to the most recent ones at the uh, blog spot. So we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Later. <laughs> uh, you may find yourself with a quite complex complex and you may end up like Oedipus. I'd rather marry a duck-billed platypus than end up like old Oedipus Rex.